This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man takes my life from me, I lay my life down. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. Before starting this episode, I need to provide a warning that it contains extremely disturbing content relating to mass suicide and murder. We saw in the last episode that Jones and his people's temple began receiving negative press from members who had defected, and to avoid the scrutiny, Jones moved his congregation to the country of Guyana in South America. The location that he chose for the Jonestown settlement was a very deliberate move on his part, as it was in a very remote area which was difficult to access, away from the prying eyes of the outside world. The capital city of Guyana was a place called Georgetown, and from there, Jonestown was about 160 miles away. Not only that, but there were no roads to the settlement, and it could only be accessed by boat or from a small airstrip which was nearby. They were shielded by kilometres of very dense jungle. Now safely in Guyana, the Jonestown members set about working together to build their very own utopia. Crops were planted and buildings were erected, and eventually they built a medical facility, a school, cottages for the members, but also an outdoor pavilion which was used for dining, meetings and get-togethers. Jonestown turned out to be a very impressive place, borne out by the hard labour of its 900 or so members. In order to reverse the negative press that the temple had received, Jones decided to record videos of the compound at Jonestown, where Jones himself toured the facilities to show what they were creating and the fruits of their labour. The videos show members speaking positively about their new community as the following audio shows. Because of Father's example here in Guyana, we're building equipment and doing things to feed hungry people and set up a little town, an actual community or a country of our own where we can live the way we like to live with our own lifestyle, not to be interfered with people from the outside and to help starving masses of the world. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been in all my life. There's so many wonderful things about it. This is a beautiful place here, and it's, it's fun over here. It's really good. I do not want to go back in any way, shape, or form to, uh, to the States. I can't help but say that none of this would have been possible had it not been for Jim Jones. While everyone was enthusiastic in the beginning, reality soon set in when it became apparent 
that there wasn't enough food and lodgings for the number of people, which continued to increase as more members arrived from the US. Rather than becoming the paradise that the congregation was promised, members were subjected to working long days in the fields and were physically abused if they questioned Jones. People were forced to live in communal housing and genders were separated, which meant even married couples were not allowed to stay together. The land was not ideal for farming and most food needed to be imported. Even with importing food, supplies were limited due to the number of members living in the commune. Personal items, including passports, were confiscated and letters that were sent home to family members were censored to hide the truth about the conditions. To protect the compound, Jones had armed guards stationed around the settlement, but these guards served another purpose, to prevent members trying to escape. Over time, more and more people expressed their desire to leave, although they had to be careful when talking about escaping in case they were overheard by Jones's spies. It was really difficult to know who to trust, but they knew it would be pointless anyway as they had no money or passports and were surrounded by endless jungle. Jones even threatened to kill defectors by hiring the mafia to track them down. However, an opportunity did present itself for people to leave, which we will see later in the episode. One of the buildings at Jonestown was an outdoor pavilion, which was used as a regular meeting place for members, where Jones would conduct his sermons, but it also served another purpose. Jones would call special meetings called White Nights, where all members had to assemble in the pavilion upon hearing the sound of a loud air raid siren. It was during these meetings that Jones reminded everyone of the danger they faced from the outside world, that they could come under attack at any time. As a result, they practiced drills where they armed themselves with any sort of weapon, any sort of a tool, shovels, knives, machetes, etc. And they prepared to defend their promised land, even if everyone died in the process. They were forced to stay awake sometimes for days at a time. These white nights were used by Jones to create an atmosphere of fear and desperation. They sometimes included rehearsals for mass suicide. In anticipation of an assault, Jones had his followers practice what he termed revolutionary suicide, where members were instructed to drink from vats of flavoured water, which he announced were poisoned. When they survived the so-called poison, the residents realised it was a test of their loyalty and that they had passed. Here is how one member described the White Knights. The term White Knight was a term used for like an extreme emergency. There would be a siren or um, an announcement to come to the pavilion immediately and there was a life and death situation. It was something where the community was being threatened and we had to make an immediate decision about a course of action. And it would usually be all of the night. Jones would also test his followers' loyalty in other ways. For example, on one occasion he had a guard fire a shot into the air 
but it was made to appear as though Jones himself had been shot, so he falls to the ground with the aim of testing what his followers would do. As well as his wife, Jones also had a trusted inner circle who assisted in the running of Jonestown, and they were also put through a number of loyalty tests. On one occasion, they were sitting together drinking wine, and a short time later, he informed them that he had poisoned the wine. They all continued to express their loyalty to him, saying it would be an honour to die for him. He then informed them that the wine was not tainted after all. At other times, he would tell them up front that he had poisoned the wine and then instructed them to drink. So it became like a game of Russian roulette. So over time, the members participated in these white night drills to ready themselves against threats from the outside world. But there was one occasion when Jones announced that they were about to experience a real threat to their settlement. Jones had fathered a child to a temple member who had then subsequently defected. He had taken the boy with him to Jonestown and his mother then tried to sue Jones for custody. An arrest warrant was put out for Jones by the Guyanese authorities, but Jones had other plans. He held a meeting at which he told his followers that Jonestown would be subsequently raided and that all their children would be removed. So he instructed everyone to arm themselves with shovels, rakes and machetes and anything they could find. They pushed tables over as shields and were prepared for an all-out battle to defend their children and community. For six days they waited for an attack by the Guyanese army. Here is audio of what happened. Every member of the community must come to the pavilion immediately. Jim said, they're coming for our children and so we need to stand strong. We were being told that the Guyanese army was coming in and we were going to to fight because, you know, if you take one of us, you have to take all of us kind of thing. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got compasses, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight, I'll fight, I'll fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight. They're listening, let the night roll, listen. Jim told us that we were under attack by the Guyanese army. And we're up all night, like a human chain, with our machetes, there's guns, there's people, the security is out. We'd stand there, and then after a while, Jim would say, well, they're not going to come tonight. And then he sends us to bed. And then the next night can happen again. It was six days of being told that you're under attack and you might die at any moment. We weren't getting any rest. People were exhausted. This is the psyche. This is what this is what he's doing to us. He's constantly preparing us to where we're thinking about our own deaths. Jones ultimately was able to convince the Guyanese Prime Minister to drop the arrest charges and the siege ended. But what the people didn't know was that the whole siege was actually because of his own personal custody battle. But of course, 
he had exaggerated the threat, as he had done on so many other occasions. This siege had occurred about one year prior to the day of the mass suicides. Meanwhile, back in the US, ex-members were increasing their campaign against Jones and formed a group called the Concerned Relatives. They expressed their deep concern for their family members who had moved to Kiana, and they conducted a media blitz in which they exposed the truth behind Jones and the People's Temple. They took their concerns to the US government, expressing their desire for the People's Temple and Jim Jones to be investigated. It was agreed that their allegations would be looked into, and a congressional investigation was launched, headed by a Californian congressman named Leo Ryan. He met with the concerned relatives, conducting interviews, and it was decided that there were enough grounds for the government to send a delegation to Jonestown to investigate Jones and his operation. What you will hear now is a timeline of the events which led up to the mass suicides. The following is a sequence of what occurred over a four-day period starting on Wednesday the 15th of November 1978 and ending with the deaths on Saturday the 18th of November 1978. The US government appointed Congressman Leo Ryan to take a delegation of 20 people to Guyana. The group consisted of ex-Temple members plus family members of people in Jonestown whom they believed were being kept there against their will. Ryan also had his legal advisor with him, a lady called Jackie Spear, plus a number of media representatives from the American TV network NBC and other members of the press who would be documenting the trip. There was also a cameraman, a photographer and a sound technician and a two-hour video was produced of the trip, which can be viewed on YouTube. Ryan told the families that if any of their relatives wanted to leave Jonestown, he would allow them to come back with them to the US. One of those concerned relatives was a man named Sherman Harris. His ex-wife Sharon and his 21-year-old daughter Leanne were members of the People's Temple. Sharon was one of the earliest members of the temple and high in rank within the temple hierarchy. Following his divorce from Sharon, Sherman became estranged from his daughter and was concerned about her welfare at Jonestown. So this was the reason that he joined the group with Congressman Ryan. The group chartered a plane and arrived in Guyana on Wednesday the 15th of November. They touched down at the Georgetown Airport, which is the capital city of Guyana. Jones was fully aware of their imminent visit. Sherwin's daughter Leanne and ex-wife Sharon lived in a house owned by the People's Temple in Georgetown. It was like a go-between house between the compound. The house had a radio room which was used to communicate with Jones at the compound. So Sharon informed Jones that the party from the US had arrived. Although Jones was aware that the US government wanted to investigate Jonestown, he didn't want this to happen, for reasons which will become clear later. When he received the call from Sharon, he immediately instituted a white night. The siren sounded and all the members gathered in the pavilion. 
Jones spoke to his followers, telling them that the US government was coming to interfere with their temple and spread lies about Jonestown to make them look in a bad light. He went as far as to say that they would forcibly disband the temple and force everyone back to the US. Jones then asked all of them to sign a petition against the party visiting their compound. Meanwhile, the congressman and his group had checked into a hotel and Sherman called his ex-wife Sharon, saying that he wanted to see his daughter Leanne. But Sharon was quite hostile, believing that he wanted to take Leanne back to the US. Sherwin was discouraged by the conversation, but planned to try again the following day. Congressman Ryan's first step was to head over to the Georgetown house, requesting to see Jones. He had the camera crew with him. Sharon was there, but informed him that Jones was not there. His reception was very hostile. Sharon asked him to leave as he was on private property. Ryan left as she requested, but he returned later without the camera crew this time, hoping she would be more accommodating with him being on his own, and she agreed to allow him to enter the house. Ryan discovered that there were a number of other people at the house. Sharon lived there with her daughter Leanne, but also she had two other younger children from another relationship, which were Leanne's half-siblings. Just at the time that Ryan arrived, there was also a group of young men there who were members of the Jonestown basketball team. They had been in Georgetown competing in a basketball tournament against the Guyanese national team. So Ryan mingled with the young men all in their teens. One of the players turned out to be Jim Jones's son, named Stephen. He was 19 years old and the only biological son of Jones. As seen earlier, Jones had a large family of adopted children, but Stephen was his only son. So the congressman didn't find Jones at the house, but wasn't too phased, as the party intended to travel to Jonestown itself, where he no doubt would have the opportunity to meet and speak with Jones. After he left, Sharon got onto the radio and informed Jones that the congressman had just visited. Jones ordered the basketball team to return to the compound. However, Stephen was reluctant to go. The team still had further matches in the days to come, and he defied his father's orders. This action was to have consequences, as we will see later. Now, it also needs to be said that Jones hadn't wanted the basketball team to leave the compound to participate in the tournament in the first place. He spoke to Stephen before the team left, saying that people from the US government were coming and that he didn't want Stephen and the team to go to Georgetown because they may try to convince them to defect from the temple and return to the US. However, Jones's wife tried to calm Jones down and said everything would be okay, that Stephen was smart enough not to be influenced by the congressman. Jones eventually relented and allowed the team to go. And as we will see later, there was a reason behind his mother's desire for the team to go to the competition. The next day, on the Thursday, the 16th of November, Sherwin called his ex-wife Sharon again, requesting to meet with his daughter, 
and this time she agreed, making a time on the coming Saturday for Sherman to come to the Georgetown house. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Jones was making efforts to stop the congressman coming into Jonestown. He discussed the matter with his lawyers, but they actually disagreed with him. They said that by refusing the visit, this would cause suspicion and would appear as though they had something to hide. After lengthy discussions, Jones agreed to allow the visit. So the congressman was due to arrive the following day on the Friday, but unbeknownst to him, Jones had given orders to his followers to clean the entire compound in readiness for the visit. He also drilled the members on what to say when interviewed. He warned them that the congressman intended to spread untruths and destroy Jonestown. They were told to praise all the good virtues of the temple and not to say anything negative against the US or that they were pro-Soviet. So Jones clearly wanted to make a good impression. During the investigation that came after the Jonestown massacre, a document was discovered which clearly outlined what the members should say if asked about their experiences at Jonestown. This document was dated in July, so it was written four months before the massacre, and here is what it said. Instructions for Talking to Outsiders, July the 31st, 1978. The following, plus any others, are to be discussed in each apartment or house, and the family drilled so that every person knows the answers he or she should in response to questions from the media or outsiders. Number one, if asked if you like it here, tell how much you like it here. Be very positive about Jonestown. Number two, if asked about violence or spankings or beatings, tell them this is ridiculous. There is no violence here. No one hits. Even our children are not spanked. We use reward measures. Number three, if asked if we bury people or put them in boxes, tell them, of course not, no one is put in boxes. We counsel people who need help. Number five, we do not bury people. The needs of every individual are considered. Number five, if asked about making seniors strip or go naked, tell them nobody here would do such a ridiculous thing. Why? We do not humiliate and embarrass or harass people like the papers said. That was a mass of lies. Number six. They have said that we do not feed our people enough and that our diet is just rice. Tell them, if they ask about this, that we get plenty to eat, that we always have seconds, that our diet varies constantly and that we have chicken, fish and other meats as well as beans, cheese and other protein foods and plenty of vegetables from our fields. Number seven, the newspapers said we have no free time. It is all dictated. If they ask about this, tell them no one dictates our recreation and free time. We do as we like. Number eight, the newspapers said we sit in all-night meetings all the time with 12-hour sermons. If asked about this, tell them we do not have 12-hour sermons. Jim rarely gives sermons. We have forums twice a week, 
where our people discuss community business and make decisions. Number nine, the newspaper article said we must marry certain people whom we are assigned. If asked about this, tell them we can marry whom we want. Some do and some do not choose to marry. The choice is our own. Number 10. If asked about work, tell them our work hours and jobs are a community decision. We work an eight-hour day and assignments are based on what is needed by the community. Where possible, people are given a choice and can transfer as soon as openings come up in areas of their choice. Number 11. The seniors are forced to work all day in the fields. Our seniors only work if they choose and then take preference of what they want to do. They have education classes, which many were denied in their youth. They have exercise classes and constant care. If they choose, they can be given small plots, which they like to beautify, but there is certainly no requirements for this. They have the best of everything and certainly the love and care of our entire community. Number 12. If asked about training, tell them we have an apprentice program in all of our skill areas, so the crafts are passed on to our youth who want to learn in those particular areas. Number 13. One of the newspaper articles said that some here were sorry they brought their children here. If asked about this, tell them how grateful and happy we are that our children are here in safety from the violent and dangerous ghettos of the states. Number 14. The newspaper said we were not permitted to write to our relatives. If asked about this, tell them we write and receive letters from our relatives constantly. No one reads our mail or limits us, as was said in the newspapers. Number 15. If asked about guests here, tell them yes, we have had guests here and plan for many more to come to visit us. However, right now, we do not have a lot of extra room. However, we have guest houses included in our city plan. Number 16. The article said we were crammed into our quarters. If asked about this, say that at times we have been a little crowded, but that we are working this out. Our plan is for no more than six persons per house. We are building the additional housing we need now and will soon have this done. Number 17. If asked what we do for recreation, tell them we have video, movies, our own band and lots of entertainment. Some play baseball and sports games or go on group walks together. We have treats and candies and cookies, popcorn balls, etc. Special treats every Sunday night in addition to the cakes and puddings and fruits that we all have during the week. We even have donuts every couple of weeks for Sunday breakfasts. Number 18. It has been said that we have no protein in our meals. Tell them that our people show that their blood is much healthier here. Some were anemic in the States, but our health improves immediately here. We have fried chicken dinners, barbecued pork sometimes fried, baked and smoked fish and many other proteins. We have a complete variety in our diet, more than we had in the States where we cooked our own meals. Number 19. If asked about medical care, tell them we have the best that can be provided anywhere. Every need is met. If the person needs special care, 
They are sent out for it even to other countries where specialists are located for their particular problem. No expense is spared. Number 20. The newspapers said we have to listen to sermons all day in the fields. Tell them they can see there are no PA systems in the fields. In the central area, we listen to the news, which the congregation voted to hear, and we have music much of the time. Number 21. If asked about literacy, tell them that education is for all here. Some in the States, even some of our younger folk, never learn to read and write. Here, everyone who wants can learn. Literacy is the privilege for our youngest to the very oldest. Number 22. If asked how we handle problems, tell them that we counsel people we do not hit. Number 23. The newspapers said we are suicidal. If asked, tell them we do not believe in suicide, which was in capital letters. Number 24. If asked about healings, tell them we believe in healings, but do not overemphasize them. We believe in doing everything possible through medical science. And the last one, number 25, if asked if we believe in miracles, tell them we have had miracles. Everyone should know at least one miracle healing that they can tell about. That was fascinating reading, don't you think? Now let's look at what happened on the Friday. The congressman and his lawyer received word that Jones had agreed for the party to visit Jonestown. They then boarded a small plane. However, Sherwin stayed behind as he was seeing his daughter the next day on the Saturday. From the plane, they could see nothing but mile after mile of thick jungle, so it was clear that Jonestown was in a very remote location. They landed on a remote dirt airstrip at a place called Port Kaituma. The compound was still five miles away, and they would have to get transported there by vehicle. This airstrip was to play a pivotal role in their story, as some of the group would not leave there alive. At the airstrip, the group were greeted by various officials from the Guyanese government, as well as Jones's lawyers. From the footage taken, we can see discussions taking place between the congressman and his people. They were informed that only the congressman would be allowed to proceed to Jonestown with Jones's lawyers. There was debate about this, and Ryan informed them of the reason for his visit. He tried to reassure them that he came with good intentions, that he didn't wish to cause any hostilities between himself and the Guyanese government, and that he intended to respect the laws of the country. What followed was a waiting game as the officials liaised with their government. But finally, after a two-hour wait, the government agreed that the group would be allowed to go into Jonestown. Jones himself sent one of his own trucks to the airstrip, which then transported the group to the compound, which could only be reached via a very crude dirt road, which cut through the dense jungle. When they arrived, it was night time, and they could see a large number of people gathered in the area called the pavilion. All the temple members, some 900 people including children, were there sitting at tables, talking, eating and drinking. There was music playing, provided by a full band, and various singers performed during that evening. 
it appeared to be a very happy atmosphere with people enjoying themselves. The congressman and the media mingled with the people, asking them about what it was like to live in Jonestown. Much of this was recorded on video by the camera crew. After several hours of the congressman talking to the people, Jones's wife invited him up to the stage and he addressed the assembled crowd. Here is the actual audio of what the congressman had to say. So we are at least uh, friends in that, that extent. I'm very glad to be here. This is a congressional inquiry. I think that all of you know that I'm here to find out more about uh, questions that have been raised about your operation here. But I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that uh, whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing that ever happened in their whole life. person who was there that night was a temple member named Vernon Gosney. He lived there with his four-year-old son. His wife had died some years earlier. She had been African-American, so they had been an interracial couple, which wasn't very tolerated back in that time. Both his family and her family didn't embrace them as an interracial couple, so they felt very alone isolated in a world which didn't approve of their union. But that's when they finally found acceptance in the People's Temple. However, tragedy struck when Vernon's wife died, but he continued to be a devoted Temple member, 
and became one of the many who made the exodus to Guyana. However, it didn't take him long to realise that he had made a mistake and he wanted out. But like everyone else, he wasn't able to leave. However, the arrival of the congressman gave him some hope that maybe if he spoke to Ryan, he may be prepared to take him and his son back to the US. But he wasn't the only one. There were other people who were hoping just the same. However, these people did not make their thoughts known to others, as people didn't really know who to trust and who may betray them and report back to Jones. Vernon did, though, have a friend who he trusted named Monica. He confided in her and she agreed to leave with him. They spoke about how they were going to let their feelings be known to the congressman, without Jones's minders finding out. That night, Ryan was talking to many people in the pavilion, but Vernon was afraid someone may hear their conversation with him. So they devised a plan to slip him a note without anyone seeing. Vernon wrote his name and Monica's on a piece of paper with the words, Please help us out of Jonestown. But Vernon didn't include his son's name on the note. He wasn't sure if he should take his son with him. Perhaps he was better off in Jonestown rather than going back to face the racism in the US. However, it was tricky trying to get access to Ryan, so instead they slipped the note to the reporter Don Harris from CBS. Don Harris then took Vernon to see the congressman and he agreed that he and Monica could leave with him the following day. Vernon expressed his fear about the whole situation and that their lives could be in danger. Ryan tried to reassure him that everything would be okay because they had the protection of the US government. As we will see later, Vernon's fear was to prove hauntingly true. There was also another family called the Parks family who wanted to leave as well. Gerald and Patty Parks lived in Jonestown with their two daughters and Gerald's mother. All five of them intended to speak with the congressman and express their desire to leave. As it was now late into the night, Jones offered the congressman lodgings in the compound for the night. Ryan planned to leave the next day and fulfil his promise to those who had expressed a desire to leave Jonestown with him. In the next episode, we will continue the story and find out what happened on that final day, the Saturday, the 18th of November, 1978, the day which would be forever etched in history. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.